So Nick, my oral boards are nearly upon me. I'm going to be taking them in December. Man, Faye, I am feeling kind of lucky because mine are after yours in January, um, but the heat is starting to get turned up. How are you studying? So one of the ways that I'm studying um, is by going onto the OBG project and taking a look at their most up-to-date information to make sure that I am studied up on GYN because I don't practice GYN anymore. I'm going back through my bookshelf articles to take a look at some of those high-yield topics from GYN that I just don't remember. Um, But they've also got a ton of great other information regarding obstetrics, certainly, um, but then even just professionalism things um, and life as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And so you don't need to just be studying for your oral boards to appreciate and use OBG Project. You can also use it if you are a resident or an attending and you're just studying up to make sure that you are practicing um, good OBGYN. You can also join us to get OBG first and make your very own bookshelf and go back to those resources that you like. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can actually sign up for one whole year free. Head on over to our website, check out the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG first for a whole year, absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. coffee. Right. So today we're going to talk about alcohol use and the fetal alcohol syndrome. So Faye, what are our learning objectives? So today we're going to familiarize ourselves with clinical vocabulary regarding alcohol use and the prevalence of related use disorders. We'll also review the risks of alcohol use in pregnancy. And finally, we will discuss the characteristic features of fetal alcohol syndromes. So to follow along, you can look at Committee Opinion 496. So let's start off by talking about that clinical vocabulary, like we said, alcohol use, like when does it become at risk? Yeah, I think all of these substance use disorders, like we've talked about on the podcast, they kind of have their own lingo and alcohol is no different. So there's a number of actual definitions here that we'll go through. The first is at-risk alcohol use, and this specifically gets defined as three or more drinks per occasion or more than seven drinks in a week for women. Alternatively, at-risk alcohol use includes any alcohol use for patients who are pregnant or at risk of becoming pregnant. Binge drinking is kind of a subset of that, referring to that three or more drinks per occasion. And then moderate drinking, even though that sounds like something that we should aspire to, um, actually is the opposite of that. It falls into that at-risk drinking and is defined as one drink daily. Important to know, 50% of binge drinking occurs amongst otherwise moderate drinkers. So even if someone says like, oh yeah, I have a drink a day or something like that, again, 50% of binge drinking falls into patients who otherwise fit that category. So really that, you know, one glass of wine a night puts you into that moderate drinking category, huh? Exactly. Alcohol use disorder kind of is a bump up from there is a DSM-5 diagnosis. Um, And that's specifically, again, kind of familiar with our other substance use disorders signifies problematic alcohol use regardless of the amount um, that leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. Um, 
Now, kind of we've talked about here, like, you know, three or more drinks on an occasion um, or seven drinks in a week or a drink a day as sort of in this at-risk category. And I think the other piece that's important to keep in mind is that drink is also very specifically defined. So what constitutes a drink? It constitutes a 12-ounce beer or a 12-ounce wine cooler. Five ounces of just table or regular wine would also be considered one drink. For malt liquor things, so the stuff like your hard seltzers and all of that, that's more like eight to nine ounces. And then for 80 proof liquor, which is kind of standard for your spirits, if you will, um, that's a 40% alcohol by volume spirit. Um, that's one and a half ounces of that constitutes one drink. Um, important to note in the practice bulletin is that a lot of patients will refer to drinks by the number of mixed drinks that they consume. So they'll say like, I have a margarita when I come home from work or something like that. But mixed drinks don't really help you get a sense of the problem because depending on who's serving them and who's pouring them, a quote unquote mixed drink could actually be one or three drinks in a single serving. Going off of those definitions kind of to Think about the prevalence of the problem, if you will. 28% um, of U.S. adults fall into categories of this unhealthy alcohol use, and 14% meet criteria for alcohol use disorder. Again, alcohol is so kind of ingrained in our normal social culture that I think that people can sometimes not realize that they're putting themselves at risk by the volume that they consume. In pregnancy specifically, 30% of pregnant folks report some sort of alcohol use during pregnancy, and 8% report binge drinking on at least one occasion during their pregnancies. Um, this rate has actually been increasing in the last 20 years despite concerted public health campaigns to combat drinking in pregnancy. Um, alcohol use in pregnancy is associated with a lot of other social risk factors. Some of those risk factors include advanced maternal age, higher gravidity and parity, um, patients with inadequate prenatal care, those with poor nutrition, patients with other substance abuse issues, including tobacco, patients with mental health problems, a history of physical or sexual abuse or intimate partner violence, um, patients who have families or partners who are engaging in substance abuse, social isolation or patients living in rural areas of the country during their pregnancies, um, and then poverty. All of those are considered risk factors for alcohol use and risk for abuse during pregnancy. I think one thing that we sometimes gloss over as obstetricians because we almost take for granted the fact that like people should know that you're not supposed to drink alcohol when you're pregnant um, is actually not doing a great job in doing the screening for alcohol use. Um, so let's talk about some screening tools and what we should do with a positive screening test if we encounter one. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just like a lot of other things in medicine, there are multiple options for screening tools for alcohol use. So the first is quantity-based. So you basically ask about the number of drinks in a typical week or binge drinking episodes over the past three months. And if the patient answers positively on either question, then that's how we know that the patient is at risk. There's also a couple of other ones that we'll mention. So the first is taste. Um, and if you have more than two points, um, that is a screen positive. So taste stands for T, which is tolerance. So how many drinks does it take for you to feel drunk or high? And more than two drinks is two points. A is annoyed. So have people annoyed you by criticizing you about your drinking? And if they say yes, one point. 
C is to cut down. Have you ever felt you ought to cut down on your drinking? And E is eye-opener. Have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or to get rid of a hangover? And again, a yes is one point there. And then the last one um, that I'll mention is the audit C. And if you have three or more points, that's a positive screen. And we can post this on the website as there are multiple score components for the audit C. But essentially, it comes up with questions like, how often have you had an alcoholic drink in the last year? How many drinks did you have on a typical day when you were drinking in the last year? And how often did you have six or more drinks on one occasion in the last year? The important thing to realize is that if someone is pregnant or considering pregnancy, any positive answers to these questions should prompt further discussion regarding the patient's attitudes towards alcohol and pregnancy. And it's important to recognize that there may be a false negative screen, um, which is more likely in pregnant people because they may be reluctant to admit that they're drinking because of the fear of consequence or reprimand. Because I think it's pretty, you know, widely known in our society that, you know, people say in pregnancy you shouldn't drink alcohol. There are some who argue that clinicians should always directly ask patients as opposed to using electronic or paper-based screens um, because, you know, the thought is that maybe the patients are less likely to lie or more likely to answer um, truthfully to uh, someone directly asking them that question versus just a screen. So the next question you had asked, Nick, was, you know, what do we do if it's screen positive, right? If someone screens positive in any of these screening questionnaires that you give them, you should proceed with careful, non-judgment assessment of their drinking behavior and provide a brief intervention. Again, non-judgmental counseling regarding risks and recommendations for abstinence. Um, randomized controlled trials have shown high success in reducing alcohol consumption by 33 to 60% or increasing rates of abstinence from alcohol in pregnancy. And if there is concern for alcohol use disorders, um, the patient should be referred to a professional alcohol treatment um, program with psychiatry and medicine. All right, Nick, so that um, kind of concludes our little piece on alcohol screening questionnaires and what to do if those um, screens are positive. Uh, so what really are the risks of alcohol and why do we care if patients are drinking alcohol? You know, I mean, you and I, we probably have had a drink while uh, talking on the podcast. Yeah, it's a great question, Faye. And I think that for the sake of time with the podcast today, we'll narrow our discussion really to alcohol use in pregnancy with respect to risks. Um, you could probably spend a whole other podcast talking about you know, the risks of alcohol abuse with lifelong alcohol use like cirrhosis, liver disease, um, you know, cardiomyopathy, etc. But today we're going to really just talk about pregnancy. Alcohol is a known teratogen, and the effects are dependent somewhat on the amount of alcohol consumed, the pattern of consumption, um, as well as other kind of contributing factors like the patient's genetics, um, their nutritional status, and other substance exposures like to tobacco or to other drugs. Importantly, there is no known safe limit of alcohol use in pregnancy. Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions that's out there is that, oh, if you look at international guidelines, quote unquote, and I've heard this from patients before, if you look at international guidelines from France or Europe or something, that there are more lenient perspectives with respect to alcohol use. And that's just not true. Um, the U.S., the U.K., France, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada all have guidelines stating there's no safe limit for alcohol use in pregnancy. First trimester exposure is associated with significant facial and other structural anomalies, as well as neurobehavioral effects and miscarriage. And second and third trimester exposures increase patients' risk for stillbirth, growth, and neurobehavioral effects. I'll talk quickly about stillbirth. Um, 
even after adjusting for other confounders, alcohol intake of any amount is associated with increased risk for stillbirth, specifically a 1.37 per thousand birth rate of stillbirth for anyone drinking less than one drink a week, um, and up to 8.83 per thousand births for five or more drinks in a week. So again, Alcohol use is something to consider with stillbirth, and if you have a patient with known alcohol use in pregnancy, is a reason in the third trimester to consider antenatal testing. Faye, why don't I have you talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders? Sure. So, you know, most of us have heard the term fetal alcohol syndrome, but you know, in researching for this um, topic, we kind of learned that there's actually a whole spectrum of disorders. And that term, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, is an umbrella term that encompasses a number of conditions like fetal alcohol syndrome. There's also also things like partial fetal alcohol syndrome, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, neurobehavior disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure, and alcohol-related birth defects. And This is estimated to affect 0.75% of pregnancies globally, with high prevalence in Europe and the U.S., about 1.5% in the USA. And while we won't review the specific diagnostic criteria because for each of them they're pretty long, we can review some of the common features for each of these disorders that make up the criteria. First of all, the classic cranial facial anomalies that we think about when we think of these spectrums of disorders are things like short palpebral fissures, a thin vermilion border, or basically like a thin upper lip, and a smooth philtrum, um, which is that indented area above the upper lip. Other anomalies include things like railroad track ears, um, altered palmar creases in the hand, so like a hockey stick appearance at the upper palmar crease, and also um, an increased risk of congenital heart defects, about 2%, which is higher than the 1% in general population, but this can be highly varied. We will post um, a picture of some of these classic anomalies just so that you can take a look on the website to see what they look like. Other than these you know, classic anomalies, Nick, what else can happen in patients um, who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Yeah, aside from what you mentioned, Faye, the other classic association with alcohol abuse in pregnancy specifically is fetal growth restriction. Um, Estimates of fetal alcohol syndrome disorders um, and growth restriction can estimate a 30 to 50% prevalence of FGR. Um, It's really highly prevalent and part of pretty much all diagnostic criteria for alcohol syndrome disorders, um, and that small growth persists into childhood and adulthood. The other major things that aren't really known until after birth are neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, One thing we do see in pregnancies are things related to the skull and the brain. Um, A small head size with a head circumference less than the 10th percentile occurs in up to 45% of individuals, or true microcephaly, that is a head circumference less than the 3rd percentile, occurs in about 12% of individuals. There are other structural brain anomalies seen in about 20% of patients. And then after birth, the things that come up can include recurrent non-febrile seizures, um, impairments in gross motor functions such as balance, coordination, and ball skills, um, cognitive and intellectual deficits, generally a lower IQ for um, fetuses affected by um, fetal alcohol syndrome, with a prevalence of an IQ less than 70, somewhere around 8% with any sort of prenatal alcohol exposure, and 20% if the infant has full fetal alcohol syndrome. 
Developmental delays are also common going along with that. And then other neurobehavioral impairments are also pretty apparent with FAS, things like sensory processing disorders and self-regulating behavior issues. Um, so again, a real spectrum of neurodevelopmental issues that are associated with this that obviously are not desired and are prevented just by abstinence from alcohol in pregnancy. All right, Faye, I think that summarizes this episode on alcohol use, primarily a pregnancy-focused episode, admittedly, um, but why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we first um, started talking about the scope of the issue and some definitions of things like at-risk alcohol use, binge drinking, moderate drinking, as well as alcohol use disorder, which is a DSM-5 diagnosis. And we also defined um, what really constitutes one drink um, because sometimes patients can get a little bit confused as to one what one drink exactly is. What this showed us is that about 28% of U.S. adults actually fall into categories of unhealthy alcohol use and 14% meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder. And remember, in pregnancy, 30% of pregnant folk report any alcohol use, while 8% report some type of drink binge drinking on at least one occasion. The rate has been increasing in the last 20 years despite our efforts to decrease it. And alcohol use and risk for abuse in pregnancy is associated with a number of other social risk factors. There are multiple options for screening tools to identify at-risk drinking, but the important thing is that you use one of them because it's an easy thing to forget um, owing to just that social bias that we have that alcohol should not be used in pregnancy. There are quantity-based tools that inquire about the number of drinks in a typical week or binge drinking episodes over the past three months. There are also things like the TACE questionnaire, um, standing for Tolerance, Annoyed, Cut Down, Eye Opener, as well as the Audit C questionnaire that we'll have posted on the website. It's important to remember that if someone's pregnant or considering pregnancy, any positive answer to an alcohol screening questionnaire should prompt further discussion regarding the patient's attitudes regarding alcohol use in pregnancy. Um, there also may be some reluctance to admit to alcohol use in pregnant patients, so there should be some consideration to actually asking patients directly as opposed to reliance on electronic or paper screens. If someone does screen positive, proceed with careful non-judgmental assessment of the drinking behavior and try to provide a brief intervention. Just non-judgmental counseling alone has high success in randomized trials to reduce alcohol consumption and increase rates of abstinence from alcohol use in pregnancy. In terms of the risks of alcohol in pregnancy itself, we know that alcohol is a teratogen with the effect somewhat dependent on things like amount, pattern of consumption, genetics, nutrition, and other maternal substance use. However, based on consensus over multiple international society guidelines, there's no known safe lower limit of alcohol use in pregnancy. We know that alcohol use is associated with a higher risk of stillbirth, with it being up to 8.83 per 1,000 births for five or more drinks per Per week, as well as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is an umbrella term that encompasses a number of conditions. We also discussed the common cranial facial anomalies, as well as other anomalies that are associated with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, such as a short palpebral fissure, thin vermilion border, smooth philtrum, railroad track ears, altered palmar crease, and congenital heart defects. Important to remember, too, as part of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are that fetal growth restriction is highly prevalent, um, and then neurodevelopmental outcomes are varied but significant as part of these disorders. Again, while we won't post the full diagnostic criteria, um, we will kind of review some of those common features and have images available on the website for your review. 
All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode on alcohol use and fetal alcohol syndrome. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating interview. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to support us on our show, you can go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Give us some support and we'll give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you find a correction for our shows, have an idea for another topic, go ahead and email us, creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com. Hey, so if you guys have been checking out our website, you might notice something new on each of our new episodes. That's right. With the start of every show notes entry now, we're going to be featuring the Rosh Review Question of the Week, where you'll get a multiple choice Kriog style question to check your knowledge on the topic that we review on the podcast. So both Nick and I used Rosh Review while we were studying for Kriogs in residency, and we can testify that this is a great way to review for Kriogs. Best of all, if you check out our website and look at the answers through the link there's a discount code for a subscription to the Rosh Review Question Bank. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com.